Welcome to Tilt Talks. My name is Adam Roberts, and I'm the producing artistic director of Tilt Performance Group, a theater company I co-founded in 2013 with a mission to shatter disability stereotypes through inclusive theater. Throughout the upcoming seasons of this podcast, I'll be chatting with company members, staff, volunteers, and community partners about their stories and what Tilt means to them. This is Tilt Talks, shattering disability stereotypes one episode at a time. Welcome everyone to Tilt Talks. It is kind of amazing to think that it has already been our fourth episode now is is what we're on actually. I had to think about that for a second and it doesn't seem possible that it's already been three months and now our fourth episode for Tilt Talks. And I am so thrilled to be sitting here today with Kay Love, an amazing Tilt Company member. How's your day going, Kay? It's going well. It's going awesome. Well. I'm so thrilled to hear it. Kay, I remember that the first production that you did with us, I believe, was Smoke and Mirrors, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. That's what I thought. I love it. Could you talk a little bit about how you came to know Tilt and then how you came to decide to audition? Yeah, well, I had been involved in Actual Lives Austin with BSA Arts, which is now ArtSpark. Um, and we had been doing autobiographical writing. And it was really exciting about the opportunities we had to tell our stories um, about living with disabilities and, and about some other things that didn't have to do with disabilities, but just kind of getting out public information um, in a way that was entertaining. And one of the members um, there, Eric, um, he knows Nicole. I think Nicole is on the board of Tilt now. And they referred me to Tilt to audition. And I had never done any acting before, but I had done um, a lot of performance advocacy and was really interested in um, the, the mission to shatter stereotypes with people with disabilities. I had no idea that you had not acted before. That's crazy. <laughs> no way. Never. <laughs> yeah. So Eric Clow and Nicole Cordicciato are uh, both performed in uh, Free Patterns. At Tilt, which was in our first couple of seasons, and they both performed in that show together, and they are husband and wife. And you're right, Nicole is on our board, and Eric has stayed involved with Tilt uh, throughout the years. And so that's very cool that you met them over at ArtSpark. Of course, we love ArtSpark and all the amazing things that they do. And Celia, their executive director, is an Austin icon in the in the disability arts world. So really fantastic Certainly. stuff. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, you came into Tilt, and one of the things that I remember, Kay, I'll back up a little bit and say that one of the things that we, you know, are always learning about is how to provide accommodation for one another's disability in terms of rehearsals and auditions and access. And one of the things that I love the most about Tilt is learning how even the accommodations that seem like they would be global check marks on a box somewhere actually still kind of come down to tailoring it to an individual person frequently. And I think that's really awesome and cool and can be a challenge. And I remember that you actually brought your own lights 
into our rehearsal for Smoke and Mirrors. And this was when I was first just getting to know you. Can you talk a little bit about why you would bring your own lights to a rehearsal? Well, um, fluorescent lighting um, is and uh, aggravates my seizure disorder. And although I'm not having seizures anymore, it can gives me a neurocognitive disorder, can make me nauseous. I don't think well, I don't function well at all under fluorescent lighting. And um, that's not covered under the ADA. Fluorescent lighting is everywhere. And it has just been my experience that unless I have a box of lamps in my trunk, I generally don't get accommodated. Unless, of course, I choose to have multiple choice disability because you can also accommodate me for being blind if I put on a blindfold or for having neurocognitive disorder. You can keep repeating things, not expect me to remember or just deal with a seizure, which we don't want to go back to. So it's something to avoid. Well, and I think you mentioned to me after we got to talking during that production, I think you mentioned that you even sort of plan which grocery stores you're going to go shop in, right? Because of the the space itself and the height of the ceiling and things like that. Is that right? Oh, yes. And some lights are more aggravating than others. Um, older ballast flash at a slower speed than the newer ones. So um, I say I can age buildings like wine because I can tell you about the decade something was built in by how fast it makes my cognitive functioning degrade. Um, there's buildings that have been around in Austin since I was in elementary school and probably before I was born that when I walk into, I can only think for a few minutes longer and then things that were built in this century, um, are much better on my mind, but still problematic. And I tend to go to places that have higher lighting or windows in the ceiling or things like that and only go in the day and actually, you know, delivery and <laughs> curbside is a, a real blessing at this point because I don't think I've been in a grocery store, not only through the pandemic, but even before that. So, sure. And does, does driving, because I imagine, are, is driving at any given time of day or the evening any different in your circumstance? Um, yeah. I, um, I'm careful where I go when I'm driving at night. Again, I haven't had seizures for over 10 years, but still when there's flashing um, through a guardrail or something, the newer cement things are easier to deal with. You know, sometimes I'll get off the highway if there's a problematic, like the sun is low in the sky, and I will completely go around construction. I've been in situations where I was going somewhere and then one time there were, I, I was going home, I was trying to go home. And on my route home, there were like 12 cop cars flashing lights down the street. And actually, before I could get home, I had to pull over and I leaned on the horn and the cop came over and I'm like, I can't go forward any further. And he's like, well, you need to just turn around. I said, I can't, I can't look out of the, I can't figure out how to do that. I'm like, can you, if I get out, can you move my car? And he had to get behind the car to where I could look away from the lights and give me directions about how to turn around and go through this place that was blocked off because I could not, I could not think well enough to drive past that. And I think too, I have some trauma response because I have had 
um, seizures so much because of flashing lights. Um, when I was in college, the copy store made me have seizures and I had to send somebody else in to make copies. So anytime that I see flashing lights, I kind of have a flashback to, to losing consciousness and um, get quite anxious. Well, and I think the idea of flashing lights, for example, on police cars is is a perfect example of a situation where the intent may be to attract attention for a variety of purposes so that you don't, you know, run into the back of them as they're, you know, lined up, as you mentioned, on the highway at a construction site, for example. But how how attracting that attention can also lead to very negative consequences in Mm -hmm. certain Mm -hmm. circumstances. And I think that that's something that we, um, that we, that we are always thinking about at tilt when we're discovering new ways to be accessible. I would Mm -hmm. love to, um, continue to talk about your journey with tilt. But before we do that, I want to take a little diversion since we're talking about driving here, diverting seems (laughs) like a segue and talk just a little bit about, uh, your career as a therapist. What, what inspired you to become a therapist and sort of, you know, what do you have a specific area that you tend to work with or specific clients that you tend to work with from a certain demographic background or anything? Because then I'd love to talk about how that intersects with Tilt. Okay. Um, actually, um, so I was riding the bus because I couldn't drive because I had seizures. And I found out that people just like to sit down next to me and tell me about their lives. And um, all this happened to me, you know, most days on the bus, somebody would sit down and just completely spill the beans. And then they go, oh, I'm sorry. I, I don't usually tell this much to people, you know, and they get apologetic. And I'm like, no, I have tell me about it stamped on my head. That's fine. It seems <laughs> to be something that happens on a regular basis. So actually riding the bus because I couldn't drive led me to realize that that I had something um, in my makeup that helped people to share. And that after they shared, they seemed to feel better. And one day I just said, you know, I should do this for a living because I enjoy it. And um, also it just seems to be a thing that, that comes naturally for people to talk to me. And um, I do work a lot with people um, who have um, health issues or um, learning issues, ADD, ADHD, um, anxiety, depression, pain management, those kinds of things, um, because I do have experience (laughs) in a lot of these things. Sure. And it it helps me have that empathy. But then also, I think just... um, Part of it, too, is when I was a child, I went to self-contained school um, for people with disabilities and had peers that had all manner of different um, skill sets and um, had an ability to interact with people in a way that that is at a peer level as opposed to some caregivers have this, well, I'm the caregiver and you're the patient kind of medical view of people. I think because I have socialized with people with many different kinds of disabilities um, early in my life, it, it makes me effective 
at um, really respecting their personhood and 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 helping them to feel seen and heard and understood. That's absolutely incredible. Now you mentioned the self-contained school, so that was entirely made up of a student population of folks who had been identified or identified as having disabilities. That's right. Yes. When I was in fifth grade, I started having seizures and I started wetting my pants when I had seizures. And it was, we didn't have the ADA and we didn't have good education laws and it was more than the school could handle. So they had a school in town where they sent people who had things the school couldn't handle. Um, I was at first diagnosed with something called hysterical conversion reaction, which is a psychiatric diagnosis. And they put me in special education for kids with emotional disabilities and I really? received medication that actually made the seizures worse for a year before I actually got a diagnosis. And there were other, there were life skills classes, um, children with severe um, intellectual issues that we played with on the playground, people with severe um, physical um, differences that we played with on the playground. Um, and it was a wide variety of, of exposure to different kinds of disabilities. So it sounds like in in terms of your life development and then also certainly in terms of your career development, it sounds like you very much look back on this as an overall sort of positive thing that that contributed to your um, way of thinking and the way you empathize with your patients and and others. I'm curious to know what your thoughts are generally more broadly on that model of um, having, you know, uh, schools that are particular to disability, for example? Um, I think the movement to get back into inclusion is, is really important. I think that um, when typical children never see somebody with a disability, then they don't know how to interact. And I think it is important for us to be included in the mainstream of the culture. I mean, I lost my friends. I mean, it was like there were people when I finally did get back to regular school, you know, I'd been out of touch with my friends. I couldn't play with the same people. Um, it was, it was not a good situation in that aspect, although it was a good situation in what I learned from being around a wide variety of people. And I think that sending people to a self-contained environment like that really deprives the, the neurotypical child of understanding how the world is, you know, and developing the skills to be flexible and understanding and um, can it benefit from the different viewpoints that people have when they do have different needs and exposures to different challenges. Really insightful because I know that that's a question that a lot of people have and, and have a lot of different varying, you know, viewpoints on, of course, have you ever encountered a situation where someone sort of questioned the classification of seizure disorder as a disability? Because I know for me, when I met you and I learned of your disability, it was it was new to me to conceive of seizure disorder as disability, as opposed to something that was sort of um, you know, the domain maybe exclusively of a neurologist, for example. And obviously, this all comes back to definition of disability and things like that. But now having known UK and having learned from you and having worked with you in complex situations, I understand how seizure disorder 
sort of manifests differently than a lot of other medical conditions. So I'm curious to know your your experiences with that. I I had a lot of difficulty with people, you know, acting like I could help things when I couldn't help them or the medicine it kind of impaired a lot of my cognitive abilities, my ability to think and my ability to learn. And people would say, well, you're not that stupid or, you know, things aren't that bad. And because things normally didn't look, you know, bad, I generally look normal or typical. Um, you know, they, they didn't understand what was going on about always looking for a safe place to land you know, because I didn't know where my body was going to be in 30 seconds or what it was going to do. And I think there was a lot of things people couldn't see um, that I was dealing with that, that led them to expect me to function um, in a way that, that that expectation was not realistic. And um, I think something that kind of struck me the most was when I was substitute teaching in special education classes and the teachers would say, I don't understand why epilepsy is a disability. And I'm like, well, let me tell you. (laughs) And I didn't I I didn't have a concept that my teachers didn't get it to that extent, you know, when I was a kid. But then I'm reflecting on that. I'm like, oh, well, no wonder. You know, and and it felt really good to be able to say, well, there's emotional problems that come with the medicine because medicine, the procedures make can create depression or suicidal ideation. And then there's the not knowing where your body's going and um, difficulties with static in your brain kind of all the time, making learning more difficult and needing more repetition. And there's just a lot of things people don't understand about seizure disorders. Um and and how they are kind of more pervasive than just you have a seizure every once in a while. And that itself is sort of a stereotype. And I think that that's part of the work we're doing is to, in the shattering of stereotypes is hopefully to uh, do some education, just like kind of what we're doing right now. When mm-hmm. we speak, I'm mm-hmm. certainly learning a lot. And um, I wish everyone could be part of learning what one learns in just one tilt rehearsal. You know, it's, right. it's, it's really incredible. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, Going back a little bit to the the tilt line of things in particular, one of the things that I have always really loved is your affinity for poetry and for writing original poetry. And I think one of the coolest things that I've heard you talk about in poetry is something that um, a lot of people probably would find surprising that one would write a poem about. But since you are a therapist, you are very trained in statistics and in bell curves and in deviations, quote unquote, standard deviations, all those kinds of things. Could you talk a little bit about your your response to the bell curve that I've heard you talk about in 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 terms of um, you know diversity? Well, normal is a bell curve, and everybody's on it. And I actually learned that from my father, who actually has a degree in statistics. Oh, wow. And when I was a kid, he would say, wow, you really fly on the wings of the bell curve, don't you? And um, and, and recognizing, you know, that there are exceptions on both ends. And um, then and this kind of our, our weaknesses and our strengths are actually both sides of the same coin. And so I got that actually first. Um, I guess it was in middle school when I was struggling with the new seizures and, and all of that. And my dad would say that, you know, um, 
it, you know, when you get into those discussions about, oh, I just wish I was normal, you know, and, and my dad would say, well, normal is a bell curve and everybody's on it. Um, because we talk about the norm, which is just a type of average, that's the mean, median, and mode, but actually normal is infinite and includes all possibilities. So if a group is actually normal, everybody is in it. Normal is infinite and includes all kinds of possibilities. We need to get a t-shirt that has <laughs> that on the back because I couldn't love it more and I couldn't agree with it more. We should, we should work on that because I have a, a, an art that I did of a normal curve that, that has normal written in a way that is statistically representative of the different standard deviations. I remember you bringing that in, uh, I think when we did, I wonder, is that right? Yes. I don't think it ever made it up in the, the venue, but it was, it was, I did bring that in for that. I thought I remembered that because I wonder for those who are listening, who may not know that production that we did at Tilt was a piece that we devised around mobility and also wandering of the mind and wandering through history and sort of a fantasia, if you will, on the on the theme of wandering. And so, Kay, in that, uh, you actually opened the show as an art therapist. And for those who weren't able to make that production or who may not be in Austin, this was a production that was actually set at the former home of Imagine Art, which is another nonprofit here in Austin that has themes uh, and missions, I should say, around the arts and disability. And so it was a gallery space in and of itself that we were in, and we wanted to create an immersive experience where the audience felt as though they were coming to um, a, almost, a, 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 like I said, a fantastical art gallery. And so, Kay, you were the first person in many ways. I guess there was a check-in. There was a check-in desk. And then you were the first person after that check-in desk that people encountered as a quote-unquote art therapist. And you led people actually through creating their own original art. What was, was that scary? Was it different every night? What was that like? Because you had some written material, but a lot of it was improvised. It was amazing because people responded so well to um, my my presentation. I had just, I thought, well, maybe we should meditate. And I came up with this. Um, it just kind of flowed when I started writing and it was get out your doubt and wandering in your creativity and, and wandering inside and color and space and texture and um, things like that. And it seemed to really help people open up and be creative. And I got a lot of compliments on that. So it really flowed really well. I was surprised. I was a little nervous going into it. But then after I had done it a time or two and seen how well people responded to that and um, had them make an artwork that represented their creative space inside, it was an abstract work and we had textures so it would be accessible to people um, with vision impairment and, and things like that so that, that it was kind of something for everybody. And we had scratchy and we had soft and fluffy and, and so everybody could participate. And it was a really enjoyable um, opportunity to get to guide people through kind of waking up creativity. 
creatively like that. Exactly. And I think that one of the cool things that people may not know about Tilt if they're new to this podcast or if they've never seen a Tilt production is that we actually create most of our work originally. So I wonder with something where we all got to contribute to our own experiences and wove them together into this narrative. So I think that it was meta in a way. You were helping people create in the context of something that Tilt had created, which I love. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's so one of is, the things I really enjoy about Tilt too, is that opportunity to devise work um, and contribute in that, in that way to um, the ideas that we present. Well, you know, something I, I re- try to remember all the time and that I, that I, you've probably heard me say to, to us as a company in the past is, you know, many, most actors are really interested in having a circumstance where they can have a company where they devise their own work and where they show new work and where they, you know, curate new work and premieres and, and get to write their own stuff. And the, the reality of it is that you might get to do that every once in a while in a, in sort of your, your traditional theater company. Uh, But then of course, big titles of, of well-known shows have to bring in a lot of your revenue so that you can keep doing all of the work together. And I think we're really in a unique position at Tilt where we do occasionally do a pre-scripted show, but in reality, our original shows very frequently tend to do better because I think people are really interested in these stories and how they play out, which is, which is uh, a really cool thing for us, you know? Right. And I think that is one of the things about our company because you do have different perspectives um, than you get anywhere in kind of mainstream thinking because of the uniqueness of our cast members. I had a management professor in my MBA program that talked about if you want people that think outside of the box, you need to find people that live outside of the box. And I think that's very definitely something that Tilt has going for us is we have all of these unique, wonderful, beautiful perspectives on things that that we can just look at things at angles other people didn't even think of to see things as. Beautiful. I just, I couldn't love that more. And I have one final question for you. Okay. I, because it's like, you know, with each of these, I feel like we could be talking for hours and hours and hours and still not get to everything. So it's, it's a bittersweet that we come to our, to our end. But my question is, if you were to describe what the experience of attending a tilt production, now we have now during the pandemic, we've extended our, our program, if you will, our portfolio to include an education uh, initiative tilt you that we've wanted to do, or that certainly I've wanted to do forever and ever and ever and various other things. But if we were talking about a tilt production, since that is the way that most, uh, folks probably experience tilt who are not company members, if you were to describe to someone who wasn't sure about attending a tilt production and needed some convincing, um, by way of what am I going to experience? What would your answer be? Oh, I think it would be, um, I think attending a tilt performance allows people to kind of be enlightened and awakened and, and have this pleasant entertainment experience that also takes you to a new perspective. 
And I have people come up with to me after performances, like, wow, that is amazing. I never thought about this like that. I never imagined, you know, somebody could do this like that, you know, just kind of the different um, things that people don't expect out of people with disabilities. And also, again, that entertainment in a way that uses all of these different perspectives to derive something that truly is, um, to use a, an old cliche, an out-of-the-box experience, because nobody is living in a box um, that is working on these performances. As usual, very eloquently stated and from the heart, which I really appreciate from you always, Kay. And I couldn't be more grateful that we found you and that you found Tilt. And I hope it will be many, many more years of wonderful uh, things together. Oh, I look forward to that as well. Same here. We want to thank you all for joining us today for Tilt Talks. We will be back next month with another episode. Until then, keep shattering those stereotypes about disability. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tilt Talks and special thanks to Riley Wesson for editing today's installment. Catch you next time.